Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. For 80 years, the Army Corps of Engineers has tried to control nature and contain the Mississippi, but now the mighty river has other ideas. The river is not a tamed tiger. It's a caged tiger. Before this flood is over, I would expect to see roughly 6,000 square miles underwater. That is a lot of land. Coming up, measures to control the Mississippi past, present, and future. Also, the government's inaction on climate change has kids taking action to protect their future. They're suing. The legislative branch has kind of failed us, and the executive branch, you know, Obama hasn't been able to push anything through. So really, the judicial branch is something that hasn't really been tried before in terms of climate change. Can you imagine if you actually won your court case? (laughs) That would be so crazy. Oh my God, that would be awesome. These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Every school kid learns to spell the name of the world's third largest river. It's M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. But while we call it the Mississippi River, today it's really the Mississippi River System. The flow of the nation's mightiest waterway is controlled by a massive complex of engineered features designed to keep river traffic flowing and divert flooding waters. The Army Corps of Engineers began building the modern system over 80 years ago, but in recent weeks, snow melts and rains of biblical proportions have tested it as never before. In his book, Rising Tide, The Great Mississippi Flood of 1927 and How It Changed America, John Barry recounts the events that led to this attempt to control nature. It started raining in August 1926, and basically it didn't stop. Cairo, Illinois, broke flood stage on New Year's Day 1927 and stayed above flood stage for 153 consecutive days. And the the destruction was enormous. It, It was. I mean, there were 10 separate flood crests that went down the river that year. Uh, You had a true inland sea. Uh, At its widest, the river was over 100 miles wide. So Congress passes the Flood Control Act of, what, 1928? Uh, Coolidge That's correct. Yeah. signs it, but I guess he, he, was, uh, he almost forgets to sign it. He was going off on vacation uh, and only signs the bill, you know, by himself. No crowds, no reporters, no nothing. Well, Coolidge was a, was a very strange cat. His son died, and after that, Coolidge was just detached from everything. Despite pleas from Republicans and Democrats, Coolidge never visited any of the flooded area. He wouldn't even sign a photograph of himself to auction off at a fundraiser for victims. You know, the flood had an enormous political impact on the U.S. because when the country saw these hundreds of thousands of people just utterly devastated, there was this huge shift in opinion, and people felt the federal government should indeed do something. So Congress passes the Flood Control Act of 1928, and it's $300 million dollars. That was an enormous amount of money. An absolutely enormous amount at that time. The only thing more expensive than that was fighting World War I that the government had ever done. Up until that time, people did not think the federal government had any role in uh, the lives of an individual citizen and, and barely any role in states. 
So they proceed to build this huge system of locks, dams, levees, spillways, floodways, and and it works pretty much, right? It, it works very well. And I might point out these are the levees themselves are by a wide margin the strongest levees in the United States. But even then, the Mississippi is not going where it really wants to go naturally. That's true. The Chafalaya River is a shorter route to the sea. That starts above Baton Rouge. It's where what is called the Old River Control Structure was built. That was completed in 1954, and it was completed because if uh, the river was left to its own devices, it would go down the Chafalaya, and it would leave Baton Rouge and uh, New Orleans Uh, And to prevent that from happening, they built this control structure. They call the engineering of the the levees and the dams and the dikes and the spillways and floodways, they call that putting the the river, the Mississippi River, into a straitjacket. Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, as a friend of mine says, the, the river is not a tame tiger. It's a caged tiger. Before this flood is over... I would expect to see roughly 6,000 square miles underwater. That is a lot of land. But here you have this slow-moving wall of water coming from upriver, like a pig moving through a python. That's not a bad analogy, yeah. Yeah? Well, with all of this water coming down and all this silt, is that, are we doing a good thing or, in the long run, a bad thing? As I'm sure you're aware... Louisiana has been losing coastal lands. We've lost 2,300 square miles, most of it in the last 50 or 60 years. That's just washing into the Gulf of Mexico. That's correct. And the reason is we have tamed the river in such a way that it no longer feeds that sediment to that land. Big floods like this carry an enormous amount of sediment. And unfortunately, we did not have a plan in place to maximize the use of this sediment. So what would you do with all this sediment? Well, for one thing, there has been talk about building more diversions to allow river water into the marshland to rebuild them. That talk's been going on for years. One of the biggest issues is going to be the shipping industry. One of the proposals, which is in the state's master plan, is basically to create a new mouth of the Mississippi River that would allow the river to drop some sediment in areas much closer to population centers. However, the the shipping industry is concerned because as yet the engineering of how ships are going to get through that area has not been fully completed. New Orleans exists because of the shipping industry. You know, Pittsburgh is a port with direct access to the ocean because of New Orleans. So is Tulsa. You know, 60% of the of the grain exports from the Midwest go through New Orleans. So it's not only a New Orleans issue, it's a national issue. It's a, re-engineering the mouth of the Mississippi, though, sounds very expensive. Uh, it's not cheap, no. <laughs> None of this is cheap. Well, Mr. Barry, thank you. I really appreciate it. Glad to be on, and a great pleasure talking to you. John Barry is author of Rising Tide. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has decided to delay new rules that would curb industrial air pollution. The decision comes after intense pressure from companies and unrelenting criticism of the EPA from Republicans in Congress.
But supporters say the rules are overdue, and the EPA's delay raises concerns the Obama administration is putting politics ahead of public health. Living on Earth's Mitra Taj reports from our Washington bureau. A proposed regulation to curb hazardous air emissions from industrial boilers has been in the works for years. The rule has undergone study, delay, underfunding, and repeated court orders demanding sound regulations based on science. Now, the Obama EPA has put the new rule on hold indefinitely. The biggest problem with this decision is that it introduced a new way to delay rules. John Cookett works for the Sierra Club, one of the green groups that sued the EPA over its slow response in the past on this rule. He says the move is disturbing, and not just because of the thousands of premature deaths that could be avoided each year with its enforcement. So now every rule they're going to want an indefinite delay while they reconsider all of the the problems that industry is going to identify, and it's going to result in industry now coming up with problems that don't exist, and, and everyone's going to want it all the time. The EPA says it needs more than the standard 90 days to address the nearly 5,000 comments it got in response to its proposal. But this isn't the first time the Obama EPA has postponed tough environmental enforcements. Last month, it decided to put off finalizing new regulations on mountaintop removal coal mining. Last year, it held off on issuing new ozone air quality standards. And more than two years after 130 million tons of coal ash flooded homes and rivers in Tennessee, the EPA still hasn't decided whether the toxic waste should be regulated as a hazardous waste. Some suspect the EPA is on a path of concession-making with industry and worn down from repeated attacks since midterm elections by moderate Democrats and Republicans like Congressman Ed Whitfield of Kentucky. If we want America to be competitive, to create jobs, to compete with China, we must stop this out-of-control EPA. Whitfield co-sponsored a bill to keep the EPA from regulating greenhouse gas emissions that passed the Republican-controlled House but failed in the Senate. At the time, he emphasized the legislation would only take away the EPA's climate authority, leaving the EPA's ability to restrict traditional pollutants intact. We're not changing the Clean Air Act in any way. Ambient air quality, all of those things will still be enforced. But just hours after the EPA put the industrial boiler rule on hold, Whitfield and two of his Republican colleagues sent a letter pressing the agency to delay another pending rule, air standards that would cut mercury and other toxic emissions from power plants. Frank O'Donnell is with the environmental watchdog group Clean Air Watch. Those power plants would have only three or four years to get their act together. They would either have to clean up or shut down. So it is truly the most significant proposal that the EPA has made. The EPA estimates enforcement of toxic air standards by 2016 would prevent up to 17,000 premature deaths and up to $140 billion in health care expenses. But the Republican lawmakers pushing to give industry more time say the EPA has underestimated compliance costs. Some see the rule expected in November as the bigger battle the EPA will have to fight, together with greenhouse gas regulations later this summer. But O'Donnell says sacrificing some rules to save others isn't a smart strategy. There's one theory out there that the EPA is saving its political capital for other uh, standards that may carry a bigger bang for the buck. However, by making a concession, the EPA simply invited a further attack, perhaps because these opponents could smell the blood in the water, or in this case, the blood in the air. 
While members of Congress so far have only asked the EPA to give industry more time, industry itself has readied legislation to force it to do so. A bill written by American Electric Power, one of the biggest and most coal-dependent utility companies in the country, would push various regulations, including restrictions on mercury, back to 2020. Nick Atkins, the president of American Electric Power, says his company is already struggling to keep up with existing regulations. We've had a substantial commitment to achieving these projects, and 60% of the increases to our customers' electric bills have been environmental-related. The fact of the matter is, though, it took 105 years to build this system to where it is, and you can't change it overnight. How do you address this issue of premature deaths in the meantime? It, I mean, some of the figures are really striking. And children sick from mercury emissions, those are things that you must weigh on you. Well, actually, you know, our job in the utility industry is to balance a lot of interest. And there's arguments that you've heard, obviously, that, that thousands of premature deaths will occur. We hear arguments on the other side as well, that there is no credible linkage and support there. It's unclear whether the industry's legislation to delay toxic air regulations will go anywhere. No member of Congress has openly embraced it yet. But it does put even more pressure on the EPA to hold back on enforcing another important public health rule. For Living on Earth, I'm Mitra Taj in Washington. If you have something to say about our show, you can post it at our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And you can follow us on Twitter at Living on Earth. Just ahead, how the science of climate change has become the third rail for Republican presidential hopefuls. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Coming up, a teenager tries a new tactic to force the government to take action on climate change. He's suing. But first, here's Wynne Tucker with this note on emerging science. Candles can be festive, somber, or useful. Now, researchers have a new use for them, to clean up groundwater. Thousands of landfills and factories across the country leak toxic solvents into groundwater. One of the most common toxics is trichloroethylene, or TCE. To clean up TCE, scientists inject the chemical compound potassium permanganate into the ground. The method is effective, but expensive and labor-intensive. Researchers at the University of Nebraska have found a much cheaper solution. They're putting potassium permanganate in candles, three-foot-long wax cylinders that are then buried in the ground. As groundwater flows past these candles, the wax cylinders slowly release the chemical permanganate that breaks TCE down into harmless materials. And the wax prevents water from entering the cylinder and keeps the chemical from dissolving all at once, evenly distributing the chemical throughout an aquifer. These candles may take a long time to work their magic, but initial results show they can effectively clean up groundwater at a low price. That's this week's note on Emerging Science. I'm Wynne Tucker. A strong political wind blowing from the right has some Republican presidential hopefuls wishing they could change their past position on climate change. Many of the GOP candidates once agreed with the vast majority of scientists who say humans are responsible for global warming. But as Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports, in this political climate, those statements are proving to be inconvenient truths. 
It's early in the race for the Republican presidential nomination, but the debate on climate change is already heating up. On one side, former Minnesota Governor Tim Pawlenty from the past. If we act now, we can create thousands of new jobs in clean energy industries. So come on, Congress, let's get moving. Cap greenhouse gas pollution now. On the other side, former Minnesota Governor Tim Pawlenty from the present. As to climate change, or more specifically cap and trade, I've just come out and admitted and said, look, it was a mistake, it was stupid. Pawlenty's first statement came in a 2007 radio spot. Back then, Pawlenty pushed hard for clean energy and a cap on CO2. The second statement came during an interview last month with conservative talk show host Laura Ingraham. And Pawlenty's not just backing away from cap and trade. In a recent appearance on NBC's Meet the Press, Pawlenty questioned whether humans are contributing to climate change and accused climate scientists of dishonest behavior. The climate's obviously changing, but the real question and the more interesting question is how much of that is man-made, how much of that is a result of natural uh, causes and patterns. Of course, we've seen a lot of data manipulation. Numerous investigations of climate science found charges of data manipulation to be baseless. And Pawlenty's interesting question about whether warming is man-made has been answered many times, most recently by the National Academy of Sciences, which wrote that climate change is very likely caused by human activities and poses significant risks. Pawlenty's not the only candidate coming under fire for climate change statements from the past. Here's former House Speaker Newt Gingrich in 2007. The evidence is sufficient that we should move towards the most effective possible steps to reduce carbon loading of the atmosphere. Shortly after that appearance, Gingrich recorded this TV ad sitting on a love seat with Democrat Nancy Pelosi. We don't always see eye to eye, do we, Newt? No, but we do agree. Our country must take action to address climate change. We need cleaner forms of energy, and we need them fast. If enough of us demand action from our leaders, we can spark the innovation we need. Go to WeCanSolveIt.org. Together, we can do this. This month, talk radio hosts at KTLK made it clear conservatives have not forgotten about that. What were you doing on that couch with Nancy Pelosi? Well, first of all, if if you read what I said on the couch, I said... This is a topic worth debating. That's true. And I, and true. I, and I said true. we should we should be able to find incentives. The specific word I used: we should be able to find incentives to lower the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Other Republican hopefuls face similar criticism. This is partly due to the tireless work of political operatives like Mark Morano. Morano was once a producer for Rush Limbaugh's program and more recently communications director for Senator James Inhofe, a prominent climate change denier. Now Morano runs a website called Climate Depot, which mercilessly attacks Republicans who dare to talk about climate change. Two things. Don't ever talk about it. And if you do, uh, don't ever support any of the global warming cap-and-trade bills and U.N. approach. The candidate could not say, I'm a big believer in man-made global warming, and we must act on it and start talking about U.N. treaties and or congressional action or supporting the EPA action. That candidate would be DOA in the Republican Party primary process. Murano points to polls showing interest in climate change dropping. Some other Republicans disagree. David Jenkins is with Republicans for Environmental Protection. Murano, um, you know, he created this website uh, as part of a 
advocacy effort against uh, addressing climate change or reducing carbon emissions. And so it's no surprise at all that he would try to beat up uh, anyone (laughs) that uh, shows any inclination to take climate change seriously and um, look for solutions. But he's not even representative of of most Republicans, much less uh, the electorate at large. Jenkins says polling he sees indicates candidates who deny or ignore climate change are out of step with rank-and-file voters. A majority of Republicans, you know, they, they favor some kind of limit on carbon emissions. They favor higher fuel economy standards. So, you know, the Republican electorate is much more diverse. It's not represented by people who you know, march in lockstep with Glenn Beck or Rush Limbaugh. Former Republican Congressman Bob Inglis of South Carolina knows his party's politics on this issue all too well. Inglis lost in last year's Republican primary, mostly, he says, because he said climate change was real. Yeah, it is amazing to think that uh, just listening to the scientist is seen as some sort of a heresy. Inglis does not like what he sees in the early stages of the Republican presidential race. Some folks are pandering, uh, pandering to some very fearful people. And what we need is people to lead, uh, not to pander. When, when you hear somebody say, you know, uh, climate change is a bunch of hooey because they heard it on talk radio or talk TV. If you're a leader, you need to say, well, you know, have you read what the National Academy of Sciences says? Uh, they say that this is happening and it's not conservative to ignore the advice of these scientists. Inglis is now working on a plan for greenhouse gas reduction that's rooted in conservative politics. But until one emerges, Republican candidates face a tough race if they call for action on climate change. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young. You'll often hear parents and politicians say the government has to combat climate change to protect our children's future. Well, now some kids are saying, we've heard enough. We'll see you in court. Teens have filed lawsuits in all 50 states and federal court to force government officials to walk the talk and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. 16-year-old Alec Lors is leading the legal effort and making a federal case out of the government's inaction. Lors is a junior from Ventura, California, and founder of iMatter.org. It's an online movement to mobilize young people across the planet in the cause of climate change. Lors is telling kids to take to the streets in iMatter climate marches this summer and stand up for their rights in court. Young people, you know, my generation, we don't really have any, you know, real political rights. You know, we can't vote. We can't compete with rich corporate lobbyists. So really, you know, all we can do is trust our government to make good decisions, you know, on our behalf. But we found that the government has basically failed us and that they've not done a great job protecting the land and the atmosphere that we need to survive. The legislative branch has kind of failed us, and the executive branch, you know, Obama hasn't been able to push anything through. So really, the judicial branch is something that hasn't really been tried before in terms of climate change. And with the lawsuit, this is basically just kind of giving us teeth. So it's not just, you know, marching in the streets and going, yay for the earth and stuff like that. So it actually has a chance to to change something, to make a, a real difference. Well, do you have a legal leg to stand on? Yeah, we've... Um, We've been working with these lawyers, uh, this group out of the University of Oregon, who they've developed this legal theory called atmospheric trust litigation, and it basically says that uh, you know it uses like old commons laws from from like a really long time ago that that are basically about you know we need to preserve nature for future generations, but they've used that theory to kind of sue on, on behalf of the atmosphere as a whole, and this is kind of like the first time that that that's ever been done, but the government actually does 
have a legal responsibility to protect the atmosphere for future generations, and they're not doing that. You know, with with all the all the greenhouse gases and all the stuff that we're putting out into the atmosphere, it's just kind of messing up the perfect balance of all of these systems, and that's what's leading to climate change and all this stuff. Well, there is something called the the public trust doctrine, which basically, I guess, says that uh, the, the the government is required to protect and uh, preserve our shared resources, and I guess uh, climate would fit into that category. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it uses the public trust doctrine, but kind of in the past, people have used the public trust doctrine to kind of like sue on behalf of like one lake somewhere or like the the air around one area. But this is the first time that it's being done on, on the behalf of the, the atmosphere as a whole. That's really kind of why it's groundbreaking and really exciting. Well, I would imagine that most kids your age do write about uh, climate change and, and, you know, high school assignments and that kind of thing. But you're really taking it to another level. When you speak to other teens, what do they say? Every young person I've kind of run into, we all have this kind of like inherent, you know, subconscious understanding of what's going on with our planet. And we've got this this inherent calling to do something about it. I gave this presentation to a really kind of conservative school in, in Southern California. And they were saying I was bringing like political propaganda and they were like going to pick it outside my presentation, all this crazy stuff. And when I went there, people were like yelling out things in the beginning, like Al Gore is a liar and stuff like that. But then by the end, they were all completely silent. And I can just kind of see in their eyes that kind of spark. And I could see that sparkle that they were feeling some kind of passion. There were 750 kids at that presentation total. And afterward, 500 signed up to be part of an action team that day. So that just kind of shows just the power of of young people becoming passionate about something. And I've seen that wherever I go. You know, Alec, I I was a child of the 60s. And and I guess we felt that we could change the world back then. And maybe in some ways we did. But uh, when I think of climate change, I think maybe my generation failed yours. I mean, do you blame us? I don't think it's right to kind of blame the older generations because, yes, you know, the generations before us have left us with this problem and kind of like put this problem onto our shoulders. But when when our like our great grandparents generation was first developing fossil fuels, they weren't like trying to be evil and, and mess up the atmosphere. They had no idea that there were any long term consequences of using fossil fuels. The point is now we do. And now we do realize that there's something wrong with using these fuels and we realize that They actually do mess up the balance of our planet and they lead to all these crazy consequences and it's going to take a revolution. And I think that revolution needs to be led by young people, you know, not like young people standing up and taking over the world or saying, you know, older people suck. It's it's the youth who, who need to change everything. But it's working together across generations to stand up on behalf of the young people and say that climate change is the most urgent issue of our time and we need to transition to a to a sustainable and just society on behalf of our children. iMatter is the organization you created, that the website uh, that organizes uh, people around climate change, right? Yeah, actually, when I, was, when I was 13, I created this organization called Kids vs. Global Warming. And now my big campaign that I've been working on is, is this international event called the iMatter March. And it's a march where youth are coming together from all over the world to kind of stand up and you know, make their voices heard. See, you've been involved in climate action since you're 12 years old. Do you miss being a kid? <laughs> I mean, I've definitely sacrificed a lot to kind of do this work. I've, I've kind of slowly, gradually gone from going to regular school to now being completely homeschooled. My, you know, my social life has basically been obliterated. <laughs> um, but honestly, I don't, I don't really miss anything. I don't feel like I missed out on, on anything. I really am perfectly happy with you know, how my life and how this work and everything has turned out. 
And, you know, if I were to do it again, I wouldn't do anything different. Um, although it does, I mean, I do sometimes feel like I would, I would really like to just have a kind of a normal life and, and hang out with people and, and do things. And I'm, I'm finding time to kind of be able to do that now. And I think after the March, I might just kind of decide to kind of focus on like writing or write a book or something and then just kind of focus on having a, a, a teenage life and maybe even go to real school next year or whatever. But I mean, I'm finding time to do things. I, I play music a lot and I listen to music a lot. But yeah, it's definitely been a, a sacrifice. Can you imagine if you actually won your court case? <laughs> that would be so crazy. Oh my God, that would be awesome. 16-year-old Alec Lors is founder of iMatter.org and lead plaintiff in a federal lawsuit that charges the U.S. government isn't doing enough about climate change. Bicycle ridership is booming across the country, and no wonder. Bikes are a fast, pollution-free way to get around and a fabulous way to get exercise. For many, bikes are heaven-sent, but safety is a concern, so they're looking to a higher power than legs and gears can provide. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet has this from the 8th Annual Blessing of the Bicycles in Los Angeles. Despite unseasonable cold and rain, and the fact that it was 8 o'clock in the morning before a school day, a handful of kids mixed among the older bike riders as the clergy assembled. The venerable Suhita Dharma had a particularly Buddhist message ready for the youngest riders. When you're riding your bikes, mindfulness and awareness is the key. Don't try to do too many tricks on your bikes in the public roads. I do see you do it sometimes. <laughs> and if this keeps up, I'm going to call the Kung Fu Panda to come and talk to you. One middle schooler who heard the message had already had a serious brush with cars. I was on Olympic in Alvarado, crossing Alvarado, and the car was going Olympic, and as soon as I was crossing the street, it hit me. It dragged me to the middle of the street, and like I had to pick up my bike and walk across the street, and the, like, the lady tried to run away, but my friends chased him on the bike. <laughs> Urban riders everywhere are vulnerable. Part of the reason the Bicycle Blessing event in Los Angeles is held in front of a hospital, a reason riders look for all the help they can get. Keep safe our brothers and sisters who ride these bicycles. Episcopal Bishop Joseph John Bruno presided, followed by Khalid Ibda, representing Islam. Protect us, dear God, and protect all these people who are trying to improve the environment in which we live. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Subhanalladhi sakhar lana hadha wa ma kunna lahu muqrineen. In the name of God, most gracious, most merciful, may God bless our bikes, our riders, and help us make earth a cleaner and safer place for all. With that... Um Bishop, we will uh, start the blessing. And so the riders in sweats, suits, spandex, or bicycle police blue lined up and rode past the bishop to receive their actual blessing. Come on, guys. May you have no more crashes and be blessed. Be blessed in the name of God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Amen. God is blessing you and your bike for safety and travel. God bless you in the name of God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer. That much more protected, they headed off to work and school days into morning traffic on Wilshire Boulevard. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Los Angeles. I can be such a
You can see a slideshow of the blessing of the bicycles at our website, LOE.org. And while you're tooling around online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. Coming up, Lion, it's what's for dinner. We'll tell the tale on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Barbecue season's here, and for a real thrill on the grill, you might be game for a rare bite. Lion. It seems the king of the jungle is available in some butcher shops across the country, including one not far from the den of Living on Earth's Ike Shriskandaraja. Ike followed the trail of this big cat from the cooler of his neighborhood market to an obscure corner of the meat industry. A boutique grocery store in Cambridge, Massachusetts, called Savinor's, is owned by Ron Savinor. I like to be known as the meat guy. And managed by Juliana Lyman. Savinor's has been around since 1939. Its claim to fame is we were Julia Child's butcher. Welcome to the French chef. I'm Julia Child. And when she moved to Cambridge, she was looking for someone who could supply her with the quality meats that she needed for her cooking show. Lyman walks me through Savinor's top shelf meat cooler. So we have amazing French pâtés, French foie gras, traditional beautiful bacons, sausages that are all local. I tell people we're the old-fashioned butcher shop. Old-fashioned, but with a certain flair. And then we have buffalo sausage. And then we have elk sausage. In addition to the French chef's usual dinner fare... Covey of quail and a gaggle of geese and a peep of chickens. Python from Vietnam. Boneless turtle. Domestic. And besides that... In the middle of the meat menagerie... We have the lion chop and the lion leg roast. That sounds like a typo with the O and the I reversed. A loin is a tender cut of red meat. A lion is an international symbol of power and courage, rampant on flags from Scotland to Sri Lanka. The lion is king. Steaks wrapped in styrofoam and plastic, even for $60 a pound, don't sound like the king of the jungle. But if you can get past the sticker shock, Ron Savinor says this meat can tap into our most ancient appetites. I mean, if you look back over history, what did people eat? They ate local game because that was their protein. It's hard to think of a noble big cat as protein, or gourmet shoppers in Cambridge as primal hunters. Savinor and Lyman admit that out of everything in their cooler of curiosities, Lyon creates an uproar. It's funny because we sell alligator and we sell rattlesnake, and people are okay about that stuff. But lions? Our customers are pretty polarized on it. You get people from hunters to people who just love meat, and then you get other people like, oh, those are extinct and that's bad. So it's a real passionate reaction, and there's really not a lot of in-between. Savinor's isn't breaking any laws selling lion meat. 
The African lion is not listed under CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. The store labels it free-range African lion, which conjures up an image of a 19th-century big-game hunter in khaki aiming a long rifle into the African plains. But Lyman assures me that that's not how they get their lion meat. That would be illegal. It's not wild. It's not safari. It's not bushmeat. We can't do that. Butchers aren't allowed to sell wild game. Free-range African lion is just a butcher's way of saying, if you're going to offer something really unusual, you might as well have fun. And whether you advertise it as feline fillets or the main course, the punchline is definitely part of the sale. It's definitely tongue-in-cheek. Selling exotics, it helps to have a sense of humor because you are selling lion. This stuff is novelty. So if Savinors isn't importing from the savannah, whose lion is it anyway? I can tell you the name of every farmer where almost every piece of meat comes from. Almost. But when it comes to the lion farm... I actually haven't been to that farm, but I speak to the processor... The distributor that we deal with, we've been dealing with for years, decades. And every once in a while, when they come across this, they will give Ron a call because they know that we can sell it. Most of us only come across lions when we're at the circus or zoo. Uh, I don't know of circuses. I don't know. I do know that they can come from zoos. The biggest source is conservation lands that need to call the pride. Then they go to the farm to kind of live out their days. They're not confined in a cage. So they, you know, they do roam around. Then they're slaughtered. It's all under federal inspection. The farms themselves, the places that it comes from, are the ones that are inspected. Lion meat retailers from California to Cambridge repeat nearly the same story. They say that their meat is raised on a lion farm outside Chicago and that the farm is USDA inspected. Online at exoticmeatmarket.com, lion meat is even more expensive. A whole tenderloin retails for $1,400. The site claims, Our African lions are raised in the state of Illinois. African lions are slaughtered under USDA inspection. African lion meat is processed in a USDA-inspected plant. So I called up the USDA's Animal Plant Health Inspection Service, the office that enforces the Animal Welfare Act. Spokesperson Dave Sachs says his office makes sure all sorts of animals on display are treated humanely. That would be circuses and zoos and aquariums and petting farms, that sort of thing. Medical research, puppy and kitten farms, and even the breeders of exotic animals. But what about a lion farm? That would not fall under this program because those animals look to be you know, raised for food or fiber, and that's not covered under the Animal Welfare Act. So what about lions that used to be on display but are now tucked out of sight, say, on a meat farm near Chicago? Under the Animal Welfare Act, we only regulate regulated animals who are being used in regulated activities. So a lion would be a regulated animal, but if it's not being exhibited to the public or being bred for uh, resale, then we would have nothing to do with it. So your office does not regulate lion meat? No, it does not. Another part of the USDA, the Food Safety Inspection Service, inspects all the standard grocery store meats, poultry, pork, beef, and enforces the Humane Slaughter Act. The office emailed me this blanket statement. 
The USDA does not regulate lion meat. They told me to try the Food and Drug Administration. So I called Scott J. McIntyre, the FDA's Chicago director. What falls into FDA's jurisdiction is anything that USDA doesn't regulate. Okay, so if I asked you a live lion being raised or held for meat, is that FDA? That's a good question. (laughs) I, I would hesitate to really commit one way or the other. Even though the often cited lion farm is in his backyard, McIntyre told me the Chicago FDA hasn't inspected any living lions. But they have been to the place that processes dead lions for their meat. They heard about a local distributor who was supplying lion burgers to an Arizona restaurant and decided to check it out. Yeah, that's correct. That's how we picked up on it ourselves. Once we were aware that Zimmer's was a processor of game meat, you know, we conducted an inspection. Zimmer's Game and Seafood is the name of the Chicago-area butcher putting lion meat on American tables. It's been around for about 100 years, from around the same time that Upton Sinclair wrote about the Chicago meat industry. His portrayal of its unsanitary conditions in the jungle led to the creation of the FDA. FDA inspectors took samples of exotic meats from Richard Zimmer's store for DNA testing. Based on that genetic analysis, they accused him of false labeling and selling meat from the endangered grizzly bear. And we referred that information to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife for whatever they deem necessary. The Fish and Wildlife Service takes over jurisdiction when endangered animals are involved. This wasn't Zimmer's first encounter with Fish and Wildlife. Special Agent Tim Santel spearheaded an investigation. The investigation known as Operation Snowplow. How did it get that name, by the way? (laughs) Yeah, well, there was a person in the Chicago area who was seeking to purchase tigers so that he could kill them and sell their various body parts. And uh, the only information or identification they gave me at the time was all they knew is he uh, owned a snowplow business. (laughs) (laughs) So thus I named it Operation Snowplow. Operation Snowplow took six years of undercover work. In our case, which we dealt with a large number of animals, I would say all but two were born in captivity, either in a roadside zoo, maybe they were a part of a circus act, maybe some animal broker uh, had surplus animals. They came from all walks of life. Santel says pet tigers and leopards can sell for as little as $1,000 on the black market. And a group of men in the Chicago area figured out that these animals were worth more dead than alive. These guys, you know, they're selling these hides for several thousand to $10,000 a piece. The gallbladders are probably fetching them a few hundred bucks. You know, the teeth and claws might get them some more. The skulls were being sold for whatever. The Fish and Wildlife Sting uncovered what they called a multi-billion dollar black market. You know, one particular day in March of 1998, there were, I think, eight tigers killed at one time. They were acquired from from an animal dealer, brought to an isolated warehouse in uh, suburban Chicago, where two individuals with handguns shot all eight tigers. They skinned them and extracted the valuable bits, just leaving the meat, about 200 pounds for each big cat. At the end of the day, they found a buyer who was willing to to purchase the carcasses. The buyer? Zimmers. We saw just as many or more lions killed in Operation Snowplow than we saw tigers killed. There's nothing illegal about killing or selling lions. 
But in 2002, Zimmer pleaded guilty to selling federally protected tigers, a spotted leopard, and one liger. He served six months in federal prison and paid $116,000 to the Save the Tiger Fund. Endangered tigers do have some protection, but lions have none. We have to recognize that the trend with lions is just as it is with tigers and has been for years, and we need to learn from those mistakes and, and not let the lion become the tiger of Africa. That's Adam Roberts, the executive vice president of the animal advocacy group Born Free USA. Roberts says that lion meat is a regulatory black hole, and his organization sees more and more lions falling into it. What we've determined is that on the one hand, you have a growing number of incidents of people selling lion meat, more availability of lion meat, but at the same time, no increase in the protection for lions, so they're fundamentally falling through the cracks. Neither the USDA, the FDA, or the Fish and Wildlife Service looks after these lions. Born Free USA thinks that a new protected status could help. That's right. Born Free USA and a number of our colleagues at other animal protection and conservation organizations have petitioned the Department of the Interior to list the lion as endangered under the Endangered Species Act. And then it could be up to a year or so before we actually find uh, whether the Department of the Interior will, in fact, list the animal as endangered. A listing on the Endangered Species Act would control the trade of lion pelts and parts. Scientists estimate that the African lion population has been cut in half over the past two decades. There are only about 40,000 wild lions left. The biggest threat to the pride comes from retaliatory killings and loss of habitat, not American appetites. Back in Cambridge, Savinor's Market says they sell about 60 lion steaks a year. Mark, a butcher at Savinor's, prepared one for me. He heated oil in a pan and then dropped in the lion steak. You get a nice sizzle if you can hear that. Which promptly shriveled. And what's happening is it's constricting. It's starting to shrink because it's muscle tissue. I've never seen a dead thing fight so much. Predators are pretty much solid muscle. When you add heat to muscle, it automatically constricts. Mark had to restrain the steak from clenching up like a fist. So what I learned early in my career as a cook was hold it down. Mark seasoned the steak, and store manager Juliana Lyman offered a taste. It's good, yeah, doesn't it? Nice, see, nice little herb, little butter, little salt, little pepper. It's surprisingly mild. If you weren't told that it was lion meat, you'd be like, oh, this is really... It does taste like pork, but because it's so muscly, you have to chew it for a long time. So on my lion hunt, this is what I found. That no federal agency regulates raising or killing lions for food. That the exotic animal trade is murky and somewhat illegal. And that we can eat almost anything. But the story behind where our meat comes from can make it hard to swallow. For Living on Earth, I'm Ike Sreese Kandaraja in Cambridge, Massachusetts. In the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. In the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. From lions and tigers and bears to, oh my, birds. Bird 
songs are complex. Calls and melodies vary by species and purpose, and producing them is complex as well. Here's Michael Stein of Birdnote. You just heard the grunt of a cormorant, the whistle of a cardinal, and the song of a song sparrow. Nearly all birds produce sound through an organ unique to birds, the syrinx. The syrinx is a set of muscles and membranes located where the two branches of the bronchial tubes converge to become the trachea. An adjacent air sac helps build pressure in the syrinx. In many songbirds, this whole song-producing apparatus is not much bigger than a raindrop. The syrinx is extremely efficient at creating sound, using nearly all of the air that passes through it. By contrast, we humans create sound using only 2% of the air we exhale through our larynx. Let's listen again to the limited vocal range of the cormorant, whose syrinx is controlled by only one set of muscles. The cardinal, a familiar bird of central and eastern states, creates its pure whistle by producing sound in its left and right bronchial tubes simultaneously. The song sparrow, like many other songbirds, has five to seven pairs of muscles that govern the syrinx. It puts forth a cascade of trills and notes as if singing a duet with itself. That's Michael Stein with Bird Note. And you can wing your way over to our website for photos of song sparrows. It's LOE.org. We leave you this week in Kenya in the pouring rain. In Masai Mara National Reserve, small frogs create a sound similar to African stone xylophones. Who knew? Bernard Fort found shelter from the storm under a small wooden bridge where he recorded this evening chorus. It's on a CD he calls Nocturnal Concerts of the World. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Helen Palmer, and Jessica Lee Smith, with help from Sarah Hawkins and Sammy Susan. Sadly, our interns Sean Falk and Wynn Tucker are leaving. Thank you, guys. You are awesome. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurish-Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Kellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, 
organic yogurt, and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.